is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about things that are important to you, to us, to America. And if there's one thing that's important to all of us, unless you live in certain cities in this country, it's the car. An icon of life, an icon of the way we live our lives, a beacon of freedom, and it's more than a sport to us. It's a passion. And this kicks off our inaugural Gearhead segment. And joining us to talk about all things cars is Adam Ferrara. He's a stand-up comedian, a dramatic actor on shows like Showtime's Nurse Jackie and one of my wife and I's favorite, FX's Rescue Me, and even on even an off-Broadway stage actor and also the co-host of the U.S. version of Top Gear, and that's a heck of an introduction. Adam, thanks for joining us. Oh, nice to talk to you, Lee. Thank you for picking uh, ZZ Top. I was just grooving to that. Billy F. Gibbons, baby. I saw the Cadzilla. Uh, I'm uh, fortunate enough because I'm on top gear. I got into like the secret vault at the Peterson Museum. It took me into the basement. Oh, man. And he's got Cadzilla down there. He put suicide doors. Uh, I'm going to say a 47 caddy. I don't know if it's the 47, but he dropped it and he put suicide doors on it. And it's really, really cool. I think I got a picture of me in it. <laughs> and I saw, I think he bought his girlfriend a 60, 61, a 60 caddy. Uh, something. Uh, top. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you, I buy my girl. I buy my girl a sixty caddy. She's him me the divorce papers. He's a lucky man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, before we get into car talk, we we love to get into people's personal background. Uh, tell us, and particularly about what their first jobs were. Hey, Adam, what was your first job? Uh, I worked for my dad. My dad uh, would design and build kitchens and bathrooms. And uh, and summertime came. Uh, I guess I was twelve, and uh, all my friends went to camp. And he goes, we're going to go to camp. We're going to do arts and crafts today. Take that hammer and knock the wall down. Okay. <laughs> Sounds so, like fun. I went to work. Uh, so that was my first job was working for my father, which was tough when the boss follows you home. Oh, man, that's but really was, rough. Uh, <laughs> but it was, you know, I love my dad. That's where I got, that's where I got my love of cars from my dad because he would always be working on the car. When you wanted to spend time with him, that's where you would be, in the garage. And we quickly realized that my mechanical ability, so my job was to hold the light. Right. Because <laughs> I just don't, I don't have the if-then-go-to statement. Hold, so the, light, hold the light, pass the beer, and pass an occasional yeah. tool. Yeah, that, well, that was it. Well, he explained everything to me. And, it was like, and I remember once I was, I was a kid, I was trying to do something on the car, and he was standing in the doorway, and uh, he was watching me. And uh, it wasn't going well, Lee. There was like you know, oil leaking, blood flying, wrenches falling. <laughs> And he put his hand on my shoulder and he yep. said, son, you're going to have to get a job. You're going to have to work at something for the rest of your life. This ain't it. <laughs> this is not it. So, this ain't it. And so, you, okay. you, you called your father your hero. And uh, talk about oh, that yeah. because I always, I always feel bad. And it's not, you know, it's not my right or prerogative to judge other people. But guys who just didn't have dads. I don't know if you saw Brett Favre's uh, Hall of Fame talk. But my goodness, he spent 10 minutes talking about his dad, and he couldn't get through it, breaking down about how oh, tough yeah. his dad was on him and how he couldn't have done anything without him. I don't know how guys manage without a dad, but talk about yours for a I, minute you know, or two. Yeah, I really, I've been so fortunate. I had a dad and that, that cared about me, and uh, I had a dad that uh, was, was set the rules straight very, very early. He said, look, I remember, I remember when I was a kid, I said, something happened at the house. They go, Pop, this ain't fair. He go, fair? Let me tell you something. You live in a dictatorship. Right. I'm the dictator. The minute you feel you have a vote as to what goes on around here, just sit down till that feeling goes away. <laughs> well said. I guess there were no timeouts in your house. I know there were none in mine. No, 
there was a, it was but to have that that guiding hand. And my father would always tell me, uh, "Look, life ain't fair, and don't be late." You know? <laughs> yeah, and show up on time, don't and life stinks. Hey, yeah, talk talk about fair, but you find happy when you can. Exactly right, and you know what? By the way, when you know life's not fair, it's that much easier to actually be happy, Adam. Yeah, well, I'm still working on that. <laughs> happy, happy to me is like a wet fish on the deck of a boat. It's going to flop around. you got to get to work. Oh, of course, of course. But I feel sorry for the kids who get everything handed to them, Adam, and they have expectations and entitlement, the likes of which, no matter what will happen in their life, it's never enough. Yeah, look, I, you were born on third base, and you think you hit a triple. <laughs> you <know? laughs> exactly. Hey, talk about cars, freedom, and a form of escape. Let's talk about the car in your mind, what it means and what it's meant to you and why you were drawn to this space. Well, basically, it, they remind me of my dad. My, my, my daily driver right now is a car my grandfather actually owned. Not, not the actual car, but the, the same model. My daily driver is a 1970 Buick Electra 225. It's huge. I got 18 feet, 5 inches of Detroit steel, baby. Three garages at my house. It doesn't fit in any of them. A deuce and a quarter? You got a deuce and a quarter? I got not only got a deuce and a quarter, I dropped the suspension. I I painted it black cherry metallic, and I drive around Santa Monica playing Parliament Funkadelic and scaring white people. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) That sounds like a a hobby, actually, Adam. Yeah. I mean, that car reminds me of my dad. That big block in there, it's just... You know, just the way that that accelerates and just that reminds me, I can think in that car. So I just, uh, I got dual exhaust on it, so it's got a nice growl. <laughs> and I just, uh, I just, I do, I just go up the coast in the car. And it cost me a fortune, you know, just with gas. And they're all electric cars in my neighborhood. People, like, scowl at me. They're like, you know, oh your car's God. bad on gas. I mean, that's where you're wrong. This thing's horrendous on gas. Yeah, this it makes takes the t- entire dinosaur to fill this thing up. <laughs> that was my dad's first brand new car. He had bought used cars all his life, and in 1972, he came back with a brown deuce and a quarter, brand spanking new. That sliding back seat, that that that. I yeah. mean, the back seat was so big you could you could have a party just in the back seat. It was like the yeah. you know, Springsteen's pink Cadillac. When I, when, I, when I go out shopping, I don't use the trunk. I open up the door, and there's enough room behind the seat. <laughs> hey, tell us. You have a great story about how you came into your first car. Uh, tell us about it. Oh, my. The, well, there's two. There's, there's the first car that was given to me, and it was the first car that ran. <laughs> right. Um, it's very different. The first car that was given to me, my, uh, my mother had a 70 Coupe de Ville. My father always had Cadillacs. Um, he always he, that was because that was obtainable to him. It was like you know what I can put your mother in a Cadillac. I feel like I'm doing right by her. So that's what he he always had a Cadillac. So my mother flips a cigarette out the window. It goes in the back seat. We don't know it. We wake up in the morning and the car's all burnt out. <laughs> <laughs> hey Adam, hold that thought. When we come back, we'll get the other car story. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Adam Ferrar is joining us, co-host of the U.S. version of Top Gear. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to pick the music our guests like or recommend. And Adam Ferrara had asked us for some ZZ Top and for some Deep Purple. And, of course, why wouldn't we oblige? I almost want to keep playing this, Adam, and not talk to you. It's so damn good. I hadn't heard this song in so long, and it's sort of a soundtrack of my young adult life. So it, it of course, dates you and ages you. But uh, you were talking about this car that uh, ultimately got torched. What happened to that car? What was the other part well, of this so, story? So that part, so we wake up, the, the, the caddy's all burnt out. Smoke is coming out of it. Pop opens up the trunk, um, and we take the back seat out. And we, we figured out we can get lengths of pipe, half-inch copper pipe, uh, running from the trunk through the front seats right under the dash. So we could run pipe to jobs in the caddy. So that became the plumbing truck. So we would load pipes in there, and we put the tools around it. And I actually ended up uh, taking my road test in that car. And my father told me when he took me out to practice, he goes, look, don't hit the brakes too hard because the torch is going to come back and hit you in the head. <laughs> so, okay, I won't do that. No. So I pulled up, and the car stunk. It smelled like it was on fire. I pulled up. <laughs> the, the guy, you, should, you should have seen the guy who got in it. He was like, I'm just going to – I think he just passed me. Just to get out of the car. Just to get out of the car. Like – we had a parallel park. You're like, we got to find a place to parallel. And there was no other car. Just parallel park here. Make believe this cars. Okay, right. fine. <laughs> he just got me out. Hey, what? where did you take your driver's test? Long Island. Long Island. That's great. And what, yeah. what was your official first car, Adam? What was your official first car? My official first car was, it turns out, uh, in my family, I was on the dead relative inheritance program. So uh, my grandfather passed away. And right before he died, he got rid of the Buick. And he bought an 81 Dodge Aries K. That's crap with a K. But it yep. worked. It was front-wheel drive. It was white with velour, uh, velour interior. But, uh, you know, it worked. So that was the car I took to school. It was the two-door SE. And I could park it in the teacher's parking lot because it looked like an old man's car. So, and that car smelled like cigars, too. My grandfather used to smoke the Nobly cigars, and they stunk. Well, you know, that, that was back when everybody smoked in their cars, and you could, you could actually see it on the windshields from the inside out. My yeah. mom was a two-pack-a-day smoker. She, spoke, she smoked at least a pack a day, Adam, in the car, in the Plymouth Duster. In the car with the windows up, no cup holders. You would open up the glove compartment, and it was a circle. That's that was right. supposed to hold your cup for some reason. They drew a circle. Yeah, right. this will work. Yeah, that'll I, help. I saw this cup holder. Hey, your next car is a, my coffee. Your next car, Adam, is an '85 Thunderbird Turbo Coupe. Now we're talking. What was that like yeah, for I you? That from my brother, and I paid way too much money for it. <laughs> he, uh, but that was my comedy car. When I first started doing comedy, I went up and down the East Coast in that car. It was a it was a five speed, um, so you, that was tough to to handle in New York traffic, and it served me well. I put a hundred and it was almost close to two hundred thousand miles on that car, going up and down. Now, as, as life on a stand-up comic, you're on the road a lot, and you're on the road alone a lot, right? And uh, yeah. talk about the, the car. Did you, did you do the plane thing, or would you just get in your car and hump it out yourself and put the money well, in your you pocket? Start doing comedy, when you first started doing comedy, it was when bar owners found out that it was cheap to produce. It's when every TV show, when I started, every TV show, if you remember, had a comedy hour. Yep. Because the producers found out that it, we, we can do this relatively cheaply. So VH1 had, A&E had them, M MTV had them. So uh, there were places to work. So I could actually make a living as a kid just getting in the car. I didn't have to get on a plane. Right. And then as you become, as you move up the ranks uh, and you become a headliner, then you start flying and, uh, and, uh, and then they pick you up and they drive you around. So uh, that, that, that's the evolution of 
of, of how the, my business works. Yeah, and I talk about uh, Top Gear and, A, how you got the gig. I mean, this is obviously something you can't fake. I mean, you know, actors can fake their way through a lot of things. You can know nothing about a firehouse and make your way through Rescue Me easily. Though I got to tell you, Dennis Leary, I think the reason that show was so damn good is Dennis Leary knows New York City. He knows the firehouse. He knows Breezy Point. He knows where a lot of these guys live, the, the neighborhoods where they live. I think that's what made it so good. Talk, uh, talk to us yeah, about well, that audition. Dennis's and, and, uh, cousin was a fire. Dennis's, uh uh, cousin uh, was in the Worcester fire. He he, he uh, was killed in the Worcester fire. That's right. And um, and uh, so when he wrote this show, you know, he knows firsthand knowledge of of these guys, like you said, of the firehouse. And uh, and we all did. Like I did research. I went to to firehouses and uh, and, and and hung out with the guys and, and just got a real flavor for it. Yep. Um, and and to figure out you know what they what they were all about. So that that all that goes into the character. But as far as Top Gear goes. We just wanted because I was a big fan of the show, and when History asked me, the History Channel asked me um, to be part of it, I said, "Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to read for the part of Clarkson. That's a great show." And they said, "No, we don't want to imitate that show. Right. We want you guys to be you in the context of that show." And it was the same producers, so I felt like that's good. It wasn't like a ripoff kind of thing. It was the same people that make the Mothership, so they're going to be just as uh, just as hypersensitive about about uh, doing it right as I am. You bet. So and- I met the other guys. And it was the strange, Lee, it was the strangest audition I ever had. You never, it wasn't, I didn't go to a studio. I didn't go to a producer's office. I got a phone call, go to this church parking lot, look for an Evo, a guy with a beard and no cops. And that's what it was. It was like a ransom drop. Right. So I showed up, there was an Evo. Yep. Uh, and there was a bunch of English dudes with cameras and said hello, shook hands. We got in the car and we just started, we just started doing burnouts in the car and donuts and, and making fun of each other. And I remember there was an old couch in the parking lot. And uh, I looked at Rudd and went, hey, you, with the beard, sit in the couch, see how close we can get to you with the car before you chicken out. And they went, okay, cut. Thank you, boys. That's quite enough for today. <laughs> and, uh, hey, that's the I dream, though. Th- I went back about three times. And uh, and then a couple months later, they called and gave me the gig. And that's a, that is a really smart way to audition, though. They're trying to figure out what you're actually like instead of that BS you got to do, putting on some airs in some room where everybody knows you're on an audition. That's I'm going to audition folks that way on this show. That's damn smart. Hey, you did some pretty yeah, dangerous. Let's see what you can do. Exactly. Hey, you did some pretty dangerous things on Top Gear. You did the Rubicon Trail and a Geo Tracker. Mm-hmm. You raced an aftermarket Chevy Camaro. Tell us about all of this, and, and what does your wife have to say about this craziness? Uh, well, basically, the first, season one, I jumped a caddy about 40 feet in the air, um, and that's when, that's when I had to make the phone call. Honey, I wore a helmet. Right, right. So, those, <laughs> she doesn't, I told her that the first time, and then, you know, there was, there was the, what, what are you doing? And then, uh, then I didn't tell her, like, how work went after that. Yeah, it went well, and then she would watch the episodes and just punch me. So I know she... She punched me when uh, I put the Flatiron building on us. I think it was a 72 Buick Centurion convertible. We had to make our own RVs. So I built the Flatiron building on top of it. And then they were racing us. Uh, I think Max Pappas was in a, an RV, and he, uh, he pit maneuvered me, and I went over on that. So when she saw that, she was kind of like, what are you doing? What's the matter I with sunk, you? I sunk an airboat. Yeah, and I made, a, uh, amphibious, I made an amphibious boat out of, uh, out of a Jeep, and that sunk in Lake Ontario quickly so that was kind of scary so my wife is uh she she kind of punches me and i try I try to be more careful now but you know what you once you're in it you're in it oh, oh yeah. look i'm in this turn i, I can't lift now <laughs> you know yep. well, but it's not just me it's all of them I mean, rut flipped the super light 
season one, he was in a race. He was he was racing a super light. And he went over the whoops, and he you can't lift in that because the back of the the back of the truck comes over. So he he flipped over about three times and banged up his back. And I know Tanner wrenched his neck in a GTR coming down a. Uh, a ski slope, so it's it's not for the faint of heart. No, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, we did an hour not too long ago on the Wright Brothers, uh, David McCulloch's book. You got it, Adam. Reader or not, read this book because mm-hmm. those these guys were but they were two nuts, man. These were the first test crash dummies. They were up in flight. Yeah. No one else had ever done it. You know, they never got in a plane together ever because they mm-hmm. knew the chances of them both dying would eliminate them from being first in flight. And actually, Orville got in a crack-up that was so bad he could never get in a plane again. And they were just nuts. They were absolutely nuts. No parachutes, no nothing. Nobody even watching them when they were doing what they were doing. But this is what guys do, and particularly, I think, Adam, American guys. They love their toys. They love to push them to the limit. They love to do crazy stuff. They love to drive their women crazy doing it. But at the end of the day, there's nothing else we could do. You're a New Yorker, Adam, and you live in L.A. You've traveled the country. We've talked about cars a bit. What's your favorite drive in this country? Oh, uh, bu- I, I, well, I like. Caddy just sent me over the CTSV. Uh, um, I just drove it up here from Santa Monica to uh, San Francisco. I like, uh, I like going up the coast. Uh, there's a little, uh, there's a little track by my house. I go down, I go down uh, PCH, and you go up Cana Dune. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's there's like a big roadrunner tunnel, you know, cut into the mountains. It's yep. like a double barrel tunnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever I get a car, I go down there and I you just roll the windows down and punch it as you're going through there. Last time I did it, the uh, Jaguar sent me the F-Type, <laughs> uh, and I did that in an F-Type, and that's just that 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 exhaust is like a Gatling gun. <laughs> <laughs> and I I got into the ZR1 almost killed me because it's got the heads up display. Yep. So when I had the Corvette and I went through there, I was I was around 90 something. I go, "Oh, I can hit three digits." In the heads up display and I realized, "Oh, I forgot about the right-hander coming out of the tunnel." <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're talking to Adam Ferrara and, of course, U.S. version of Top Gear and our inaugural segment of Gearheads. Adam, thanks so much for joining us, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And, again, if you want to catch any of our content, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, business, American history, just about everything. But one of our favorite subjects, generosity, and the generous things Americans do for each other and for the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners of the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity protecting philanthropic freedoms, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and a guy as eclectic as the stories you'll hear in this series. Carl has authored 11 books, including The Almanac of American Philanthropy, and two from his on-the-ground reporting during the Iraq War. He also lives on a houseboat, which more than anything should tell you that you're in for a treat. 
Take it away, Carl. Osceola McCarty's life had a raw beginning. She was conceived when her mother was raped on a wooded path in rural Mississippi. Osceola was raised in Hattiesburg by her grandmother and aunt, who cleaned houses, cooked, and took in laundry. As a child, Osceola would come home from elementary school in iron clothes, stashing the money she earned in her doll buggy. The three women relied completely on each other, and when the aunt returned from a hospitalization unable to walk, Osceola dropped out of sixth grade to care for her and took up her work as a washerwoman. She never returned to school. Work became the great good of her life, explained one person who knew Osceola. She gave herself over to it with abandon. Here is McCarty speaking in her own words toward the end of her life. Plenty of work to do. I worked all night sometime and all day, and then the next day. I knew there were people who didn't have to work as hard as I did, McCarty once said, but it didn't make me feel sad. I loved to work, and when you love to do anything, those things don't bother you. I had goals I was working toward. And hers was not a standard-issue job. McCarty scrubbed her laundry by hand on a rub board, then boiled it in a pot and hung each piece on a line to dry. Here she describes the tools of her trade. Okay, time wash pot, and a, and a tin tub, and rub the clothes with a rub board, and throw them in the pot and boil them, wrench them, come to the line, hang them up, or we starch them. She did try an automatic washer and dryer in the 1960s, but found that, quote, the washing machine didn't rinse enough and the dryer turned the whites yellow. That wasn't good enough to meet her high standards, so the machine was almost immediately retired and she went back to her made-right scrub board, her boiling pot, and 100 feet of open-air clothesline. Osceola McCarty stuck with this extraordinary work ethic right up to her retirement at age 86. Hard work gives your life meaning, she stated. Everyone needs to work hard at something to feel good about themselves. Every job can be done well, and every day has its satisfactions. If you want to feel proud of yourself, you've got to do things you can be proud of. McCarty's shirt laundering didn't bring in much money. We didn't charge much. Sometimes it'd be two dollars, sometimes a dollar and a half. But she was frugal. And she was a saver right from the beginning when she started working at age eight. As the money pooled up in her doll buggy, the very young girl took action. She explained, quote, I went to the bank and deposited. Didn't know how to do it. Went there myself. Didn't tell Mama and them I was going. She went on to explain, I commenced to save money. I never would take any of it out. I just put it in. It's not the ones that make the big money, but the ones who know how to save who get ahead. You got to leave it alone long enough for it to increase. These sturdy habits ran together to produce Osceola McCarty's final secret. It was one that made many Americans very proud of her. When she retired in 1995, her hands painfully swollen with arthritis, this washerwoman, who had been paid in little piles of coins and single dollar bills her entire life, had $280,000 in the bank. Even more startling, she decided to give most of it away, and not as a bequest, but immediately. Setting aside just enough to live on, McCarty donated $150,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi to fund scholarships for worthy but needy students seeking the education that she never had. 
when they found out what she had done, over 600 men and women in Hattiesburg and beyond made donations that more than tripled her original endowment. The first beneficiary of a McCarty scholarship was a Hattiesburg girl named Stephanie Bullock. She was president of her senior class and had supportive parents, but also a twin brother and not enough family income to send them both to college. With her scholarship, Bullock enrolled at Southern Miss and promptly adopted McCarty as a surrogate grandmother. The university has presented several full-tuition McCarty scholarships every year since then. In addition to helping students, McCarty offered other Americans powerful inspiration that giving is something anyone can do. You know, some people didn't give nothing. I was a little washwoman. Everybody else ought to be able to do it themselves. In addition to enjoying the dignity of work, McCarty's satisfactions were the timeless ones. Faith in God, family closeness, and love of locale. One friend described McCarty's faith as as simple as the Sermon on the Mount and as difficult to practice. McCarty once told an interviewer, I start each day on my knees saying the Lord's Prayer. You have to accept God the best way you know how, and then he'll show himself to you. And the more you serve him, the more able you are to serve him. Some people make a lot of noise about what's wrong with the world, and they are usually blaming somebody else. I think people who don't like the way things are need to look at themselves first. They need to get right with God and change their own ways. If everybody did that, we'd be all right. Once a journalist from People magazine asked McCarty why she didn't spend the money she'd saved on herself. She answered with a smile that, thanks to the pleasure that comes from helping others, quote, I am spending it on myself. My only regret, she said, is that I didn't have more to give. Osceola McCarty knew she didn't have to save the whole world. She just cast down her buckets and fixed what was at hand, in her own backyard. I can't do everything, she explained, but I can do something to help somebody, and what I can do, I will do. And she learned that generosity is its own reward. I feel blessed, and whatever I do, I do it from my heart. And they all seem like they appreciate it. And that's the reason I believe I'm blessed. And there you have it. Another great story from Carl Zinsmeister, who heads the publications area over at the Philanthropy Roundtable. And he's also the author of The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And what a terrific, what a terrific set of stories in that book. You just can't believe the number and the range. And again, it's everything from the highest net worth folks. We heard the story of Terry Kohler who's a, a multimillionaire. Uh, and you just heard the story of a woman who was ironing shirts for a dollar and two dollars at a time and somehow managed to scrape together. Well, it's just unbelievable in the end when you look at these numbers. She donates 150000 to a university. And even better, that folks triple that amount when they hear her story. And she put it best. As simple as Sermon on the Mount and as hard to practice is what she did. And she started on her knees. And it's a great way to start your day if you've ever tried it. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories, our sweet charity series from the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedoms, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And you can go to our sweet charity series and hear all of them by going to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. 
More after these messages. our American stories and you're listening to Bernard Herman's remarkable soundtrack to Psycho and when I hear that soundtrack I think showers and that of course leads us to Jesse's shower thoughts thoughts. the first guy that died with life insurance never knew if it was a scam as a teenager I was told not to trust anyone on the internet and not to be stupid online now I'm telling my parents the same things. <laughs> USB sounds like a backup plan in case the USA fails. <laughs> it's pretty dumb that I get a new driver's license every four years and it's made out of hard plastic. And I'm supposed to have my social security card for life and it's made out of paper. There's enough apps for finding friends, lovers, and soulmates. I want an app that helps me find my arch enemy. Using your old laptop to research buying a new one is like asking it to dig its own grave. Girl Scouts is basically a brand name cookie company that gets away with child labor. When I unsubscribe from a newsletter and get an email confirming that I've been unsubscribed, it feels like they needed to be the one to say the last word in an argument. Candlelight dinners weren't very special before the light bulb was invented. As an adult, I'm not eating nearly as much ice cream as 10-year-old me thought I would. My dog keeps bringing me the same toy. I wonder if that's his favorite toy or if he thinks it's my favorite toy. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people is a quote that discusses people. In FBI shows, cops are incompetent, unskilled simpletons who just get in the way. In cop shows, the FBI are bureaucratic, incompetent simpletons who just get in the way. The person who would proofread Hitler's speeches was a real-life grammar Nazi. (laughs) Casinos should let people play Monopoly with real money. Nothing says top of the food chain like squid ink calamari pasta. You're eating another animal and seasoning it with its own defense mechanism. At age 30, you've spent an entire month having birthdays over your lifetime. In a 500-day period, I could theoretically meet someone, get married, have a baby, and get divorced, and yet I'd still be using the same box of Q-tips. Shower thoughts. 
Oh, thank you, Jesse. And we love just featuring the work of our staff. And Jesse is our Cracker Jack executive producer. There's a few people in this country better at it, but he's just, he's wickedly funny too. And we love some of our regular contributors. And one of them, well, he's a guy named Steve Goldberg. And he chaired the sociology department at City College of New York. And he's the kind of guy who you sit on a bench, you have a snack or you're cracking open a sandwich or a beer, and six hours will pass. You'll speak maybe 10% of the time and you won't care because he's just so endlessly fascinating. And Stan, tell us what you and your pal Steve Goldberg are digging into in this conversation with, 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 with this conversation with Steve that you had this week. Exactly as you say. You just pick up the phone and with Steve, you never know where it's going to go. Can you, can you imagine taking a class with this guy? Just where where it would twist and turn. But this week, he starts off a sentence by saying, I've always heard that Darwin's theory of evolution is one of the greatest discoveries made by man, up there with Einstein's and Archimedes. And with that, we said, okay, he's got one. Hit start recording, and he's off to the races. So here's our conversation with Steve. My understanding of biology is pretty much limited to the knowledge that, save for a bunch of tiny little guys at the bottom, technically known as germs, all living things are divided into two groups, meat and vegetables. Nonetheless, the following is, I think, worthy of consideration. As you no doubt know, there is a very famous view of the evolution of species, Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin's theory is often presented as among the very greatest of scientific theories, equivalent to Einstein's theory of relativity. Well, maybe. But things are not that simple. At the very least, there is a serious glitch with Darwin. The nature of this criticism becomes clear if we consider that virtually all scientists mean by a scientific statement or hypothesis or theory. A statement is scientific only if it is vulnerable to refutation. If you couldn't lose, you can't win. The statement need not be correct, nor need it be vulnerable to refutation in practice. The statement that the other side of the moon is made of green cheese was scientific, though of course woefully incorrect, even 500 years before the development of the rocket ship. Likewise, Einstein's MC squared would obviously be refuted by the discovery that energy doesn't equal mass times the speed of, of light squared. Now, let us consider Darwin's theory. A few years after Darwin announced his theory, the theory was summed up to Darwin's satisfaction by Herbert Spencer, as describable by the phrase, survival of the fittest. On average, those species that were the most fit would be the species that survive. And the species that survive are those that are most fit. It sounds perfectly reasonable at first. But think about it for a minute. Let us say that Darwin had said that the biggest species will, on average, survive. No problem. While, of course, incorrect, the theory would predict that, on average, species like dinosaurs will survive, while species like dachshunds won't. The theory would obviously be incorrect, but the fact that it can be shown to be incorrect demonstrates that it has the structure required of science. Now to the point. 
Darwin didn't say that the biggest species, but the fittest species survive. Say dinosaurs survive and dachshunds don't. According to Darwin, that's because dinosaurs are fit. But say the dachshunds survive and dinosaurs don't. That's because dachshunds are fit. Wait a minute. How could Darwin lose? Whatever survives will be claimed to be to have survived because it is fit. Fit and survive are defined in terms of each other. They are not like big and survive, defined independently. Darwin couldn't lose. Darwin's theory is not a theory. Survival of the fittest is a tautology. The two terms are, unlike biggest and survival, defined in terms of each other. And the claim, therefore, could not be refuted. This, is criti- this criticism of Darwinism uh, makes biologists fume and philosophers giggle. Nonetheless, it was recognized within 15 seconds of Darwin's announcement by the great evolutionist biologist T.H. Huxley and by many, though not all, great biologists since. Incidentally, a general concept of evolution was suggested long before Darwin's century. Um, Even in ancient times, Anaximenes and Aristotle proposed roughly evolutionary theories. Um, of species development, and many more um, since then. Many such theories were, unlike Darwin's, teleological, having an inherent direction, and they lacked Darwin's suggested mechanism, survival of the fittest. Um, But they did posit evolution long before Darwin did. So is this vulnerability to refutation where you draw the line between questions of science and questions of faith? Um, well, I guess I wouldn't emphasize the faith part of what it is if it's not science. Is, I, I guess you could call it faith. Um, I, I think that's a little unfair, because in truth, I, I wouldn't say that, that Darwin is nonsense. It, what it certainly does is points attention to discovering the reason for the extinction of individual uh, species. And that's not, that has no, none of the problem I talked about. If you wanted to, why did dinosaurs not survive? And you could say, it was because a comet hit, or because their eggs got too thin, or whatever. These are scientific theories to, for which there is evidence. There's no question of tautology there. So certainly, I just call it faith would be uh, uh, criticizing it more than necessary. But I do think it's a very important point that a, that a scientific statement, a scientific theory, must tell you the, the the terms under which it would be surrendered, and uh, you can't do that. When, when you try to apply Darwin to all species, not to individual species, but as a general theory of why species survive or don't, I, I don't think it is a theory because it can't be refuted. In your, in your decades in academia, where else have you seen this sort of circular uh, tautological logic, you know, where, where, where it sounds fine at first, but if you think about it, you flip the coin and you win either way? It's a wonderful question, and I can't. I, philosophy is not well. I've occasionally published in philosophy journals. It's it's not really my field, so it may be that other philosophers could give you example. I have never found another example. Indeed, it takes a certain kind of genius to come up with a theory that's tautological. It's not so easy. Try to make up one, and you'll find it's it's very difficult. So I I can't give you another example. I give you lots of examples of terrible theories, but we know they're terrible because they can be and have been refuted. But for the theories that can't be refuted, that couldn't be refuted, the only one I know is that. And that's our man Stan talking to one of our favorite guests, Steve. 
Steve Goldberg, the guy you just want to talk to about anything. When we come back, more with Our American Stories. After these messages, to capture more of Steve Goldberg, go to ouramericannetwork.org and just look up his name. This is our American stories, and we don't do politics, and we don't do hard talk. It's stories and only stories, and every once in a while, we do dip into the world of public policy, but only as it relates to storytelling, and we like to dip into the areas where things are working. You hear about what doesn't work every day, and so what we wanted to do today was continue our discussion we're having with you nationally about a subject that matters to us and to a lot of Americans, and that is prison reform. And you're getting an odd convergence of political allies. Uh, my, uh, my dear friend and someone I've worked with over the years, Newt Gingrich and his team, and Van Jones are actually running around the country talking about this. And that's good. I like it when folks from the left and the right can actually agree on some things. Um, we're always told about what we don't agree on, and here on Our American Stories We'd like to beat a different path. And the state of Texas has been a pioneer in this space. And the red state of Texas leading the charge on prison reform. Our friends at the Texas Public Policy Foundation have been doing some great work. But it's on the ground with people like Judge Robert Francis, who's on the, on the line now, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Program and Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas. Judge Francis, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Happy to be here. Hey, before we even dig into the the prison reform judge, tell us a little bit about your road to being a judge, because it's just so interesting to get the backgrounds of the people involved in these programs. Tell us a little about where you were from, your family background, and how you ended up where you are right now. Uh, Well, it's kind of a long story, so I'll give you the short version. When I was a kid, I lived north of Austin near a little town called Pflugerville, Texas, uh, we moved to Dallas about uh, the end of my sixth grade year, and I grew up then in North Dallas. I went to Richardson High School. Uh, I got to go back to, to UT, so I went to University of Texas for undergrad and graduated from there. Uh, in all honesty, <clears throat> I did not have any plans of going to law school or ever being a judge, uh, but I couldn't find a job that I liked when I got out of school, so I ended up going to law school. Uh, when I got through with law school, I actually thought I'd probably go into oil and gas or real estate, but my family wanted me to come back to live in Dallas, so I interviewed here with uh, Henry Wade, who's uh, pretty well known. He was the DA in Dallas County at the time, and the next thing I knew, uh, I was a prosecutor in Dallas County, and so I I spent um, five years as an assistant district attorney. Then I spent six years in private practice, basically being a defense attorney, uh, got elected, and I've been a judge 
for about 20 years now. Well, you know, I, and, and I'm a recovering lawyer myself. I went to the University of Virginia <laughs> Law School. And it's interesting. I worked in a prosecutor's office for one summer and a defender's office in the other. And what I routinely saw it, it was, was people, some people not getting enough time, the hardcore rapist, the, the stone-cold bad guy. Um, sure. And, and some guys who were just what I called goofballs. They kept on just doing stupid stuff. They weren't tremendous harms to society. But as they were getting their second and third and fourth offense piled on, they were starting to get hard time piled on. As a judge, talk about life before your ability to have these courts and especially and particularly mandatory minimums and and guidelines that sort of handcuff judges. Talk about the world before the world that we're about to talk about. Well, when when I was a prosecutor, probation was, it just didn't occur that often. If you were a first-time offender and you had a a small drug case or a property crime, you were likely going to get probation. But if you messed up that probation by anything, I mean, I saw people that would be 15 minutes late to a probation meeting or test dirty one time for marijuana. Those guys were getting revoked and popped. And what happened is, even if you were not a violent offender, we have what we call enhancement paragraphs. And, and I don't have any argument that, that they're inappropriate, but sometimes they're used inappropriately. And what would happen is you'd get a, a final felony conviction, and then the next time you got in trouble, it would go from being a smaller case to a major case. And if you got two of those prior convictions, the punishment range was a minimum of 25 years up to 99 years or life. So it was not uncommon um, to see people with with relatively small cases, and and I say that, you know, when you compare it to aggravated offenses where somebody's sexually assaulted or hurt or murdered, and suddenly they were looking at a huge punishment range, and it was usually because they were an addict, and they didn't change their behavior because they were an addict, so they would get repeated drug cases or property crimes, and the next thing you knew, they were getting a whole lot bigger sentence than somebody who was violent who probably should be getting the bigger sentence. You bet, and I think that's what we're talking about. So folks here who are listening and wondering, going, guys, why are you talking about prison reform? Well, I think what we want to always try and sort out are those people that are real risks to society, and I mean the predators. And then those, the people who aren't risks to society, they're more risks to themselves. And I think every family in America now has somebody in their family who's an addict, who's possibly done some dumb, stupid stuff like steal stuff out of a store or or commit low-level larcenies to support their habit. Um, so talk about this, this dynamic tension. And, and just about a minute here, and we come on the other side, we'll talk about the program. But the okay. judge is this ultimate arbiter, tremendous responsibility. You want to both protect society, but yet you want to be a human being, and you want to not, sure. not make it impossible for people who are committing low-level offenses to, to, to be members of society. Talk about that as a judge, how that weighs on you. Well, I, I think the, the advantage that younger judges have now is that actually the society we live in has changed their views. Back 15, 16 years ago when I started doing this, the view was still pretty much lock them up and throw away the key. So you were taking a risk by working with someone. I think that's changed now, and, that, and that's good because you can take the folks who don't represent 
a, a risk of danger, hurting somebody, and put them in a different program. Even the folks that I deal with are locked up for a certain period of time, but try to get them in rehabilitative treatment and see if you can change their behavior. And if you do, we've done a much better job in improving the world we live in than just locking somebody up and continuing to build bigger, more expensive prisons. You bet. And by the way, saving the taxpayers a lot of money too, though. I think that should always be the secondary position. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Judge Robert Francis, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas, leading the charge on prison reform in this great country. Again, we'll be back with more from Judge Francis after these messages. is our American Stories. We're continuing our conversation with Judge Robert Francis, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas. And Judge Francis, let's talk about, if we can, what the old reentry system for prisoners looked like before the new one. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think there really was one. Um, what happened was people got released from prison. Uh, they were given, I think, fifty dollars, uh, some clothes that were not new, and a bus pass to whatever their their home address was before they went in. And that was pretty much it. They had instructions to meet with their with their parole officer and follow up. But as far as some sort of reentry system like my court is, uh, designed to to get them through the first year to year and a half when they get out by providing them certain, uh, at least tips, uh, help, counselors, uh, job interviews, uh, the different skills that we try to provide them. That, that didn't really exist. The, the poor parole officers were just overloaded with how many people they had to deal with. And as, as hard as they would try to help, that, that wasn't going to happen when you had as many people getting released from prison because we have a huge prison system. Yep, yep. So they're constantly cycling in and out. You know, it's interesting. We just did an hour on Merrill Haggard, and we had a quote from Merrill Haggard talking about what it felt like. He said the loneliest days in his life were two to three days after he got released from prison because he had no idea where to go. Sure. what to do. He couldn't afford probation. His old friends didn't trust him because he was a, a, a criminal. No one would hire him. And in the end, he said, sometimes I wished I was back in the joint because at least I had a, an ecosystem I understood. Oh, uh, I deal with people that say that all the time, that, that it's, it's very hard work even with the help we give them to get through reentry, it's just easier to go back to prison where they understand. They said there's, the only worry about life in prison is the guy behind you because your, your bed is taken care of, your food's taken care of, your day's planned for you. They say, when you're out here, I worry about everything. What am I doing next, as well as the guy behind me? Right, right. And in prison, it's easier to live. <laughs> it's easier to live. Let's talk about Texas. It's the Hang'em High State. I mean, this is the Historically. place. And, and, and yet today, look at what's happening. Tell us the story behind this remarkable, and some would even think, just crazy turnaround. 
1989, the first drug treatment courts in America started. One was in Florida and one was in California, and I'll let them fight about who was actually first. And then what happened in Texas, uh, as we moved into the 90s, there were a couple judges, uh, Judge John Crusoe here in Dallas, one of my good friends, and his court was next door to mine, that kind of started drug treatment courts. And at the time, you were focused on first-time offenders with low-level offenses, the people that had the best chance of succeeding. And so I got involved with Judge Cruzo, helping him with his court, and decided I wanted to do the same thing. But we took on a different population, which was the reentry population, which was people who had been to prison probably three or four times before. Some of them have aggravated offenses, a very different population than first-time offenders with a low-level case. And the, the object was to see, would this same treatment protocol work with these folks? Could we do something with them? We had these, these what we call safe P units, treatment units in prison, where they were getting rehabilitative treatment, but we weren't getting the successful outcomes we wanted. It was better than nothing, but we weren't getting our money's worth. And once we added this reentry court, a follow-up for a year to a year and a half afterwards, our success rates, our people staying clean, staying out of prison, avoiding rearrest, new, avoiding new crimes, shot through the roof. And, and, and so it was just it was validated that we could take almost any offender and work with them and change their behavior over time. Now, you're not going to get 100%, but anything you get that's an improvement is a better bang for the taxpayer's buck. You know, for the folks listening, and I think there are a lot of conspiracy theorists who think that when we privatize the prisons, we were actually turning this into a hotel complex and a prison industrial complex, that there were incentives to incarcerate people, so sure. on and so forth. You know the line. I, I, you know, I'm not a conspiracist Absolutely. myself. But we do know that this was a tremendous cost to the people of Texas. And, and the incentives were, if anything, not exactly flowing in a proper direction. Talk sure. about how this has saved not only lives, Judge, uh, but how it saved the taxpayers tremendous amounts of resources. Well, you go back to about six years ago, um, Texas was looking at building two additional prisons. Now, the estimated cost for building those prisons, then staffing them and running them, was $2 billion. At that time, uh, Representative Madden went to the governor and said, you know, I, I, I've worked with Judge Francis, I've worked with Judge Crusoe, I've got some ideas on how we can approach this differently. Let's not build the prisons. Let's change the law to allow for more reentry and treatment courts and see what happens. So not only did we save the $2 billion on those prisons because we didn't build them, since that time we've actually closed three prisons. That has never happened in the history of the state of Texas since 1845, nor in the history of the Republic of Texas since 1836. So you're talking, if two billions for new prison, probably shutting down the old ones easily, you know, $750 million a piece, if not more, you're looking at saving, you know, over $4 billion in expenditures that we can move to other things that are more important, like education, uh, health care, roads, in this state, water. Uh, it, it just has saved the taxpayer a tremendous amount of money and let us put our resources in other places that need those resources. And by the way, these are the very same men who were a drag on the economy, who may, who may and in all probability do because of your work, end up paying taxes and contributing to society, Judge. One of the things, one of the things I, that you're known for, and not just in Texas, 
is your demeanor with the participants in your program. <laughs> and, Judge, we just got to play a little clip because it's so real. And I think in the end, it's in large part why you're effective. Let's take a listen. Sure. You're popping off and being a smart ass and a pain in the butt. I almost solved that problem. I should be sending you to jail today. I figure you owe me, and I won't forget it. I'm not your daddy. I'm not going to be there to wipe your butt, zip your britches up, tuck your shirt in every day, all right? You got to take care of yourself. If you tell me the truth and you show up, I'm happy to work with you. If you lie to me, treat me like a chump or run off, and we're going to have a problem, okay? This is tough, straight talk, and it's uh, to me it sounds like what a military... Uh, command sergeant or 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 a CO, how, the, the demeanor there with their folks. There's great respect, but there's really good straight talk. Talk about why that is, and, and obviously it's just a part of your personality. But sure. why why you adopt that demeanor? You wouldn't do this in a traditional court, let's just no. say. No, um, I've had the advantages of, of of parents that were married together their whole lives, that were educated, that ensured that I went to good schools, went to quality universities, got a decent education. It doesn't do me any good to eloquently pontificate in court and then have everyone that I'm speaking to raise their hand and say, Judge, I don't understand what you said. It's easier for me to say, damn it, get your act together, or I'm going to send your ass to prison. They understand that. But they also understand when I look at them and say, damn it, you did get your act together, and I'm so proud of you. I'm going to shake your hand, give you a hug, pat you on the back, and brag about you to anybody that wants to listen. And uh, Mr. Hodling's sitting here in my office. I, I think the fact that the participants understand what I'm saying. I'm very clear whether it's a, a positive, uplifting, inspirational message or a you need to get your act together or judgment day's coming message. Yep. It, it's, it's, you're, you're being a coach almost. It's, it's parenting. You've got to talk to folks where they can understand you and appreciate the fact that you're communicating with them in a way they can understand and they know you care about their success. I think that's dead right. And by the way, we did an hour on Coach Saban and we had some incredible moments where he's just tearing into his guys and they said sure. they've been Saban. They had a joke for it because they knew he loved them. He wanted the best out of them. And there were consequences if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. In a minute here, Judge, I wanted one last question. You've talked about sure. a defining moment you had with a 37-year-old black female at one of your graduations. Share yeah. us that story if you could quickly. Uh, the, 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 the short version of it is, is this woman uh, was about a 37-year-old black female. She had three children. Uh, the only job she'd ever had in her life was selling herself as a prostitute or selling dope. She never had all of her children together because CPS, Child Protective Services, was always taking them away because she was an unqualified parent. Yep. And after she went through treatment, after she went through court and she made changes, a couple things happened. One, she got a, a, an apartment and she was very proud of the fact she paid for it herself with her earnings. She was working at McDonald's, and some people look down on that job, but for her, she was proud of herself, and she was in management training. I mean, I couldn't have been prouder of her if she was my own child graduating from college. But because of the fact she had that job, she had tested clean for over a year, and she had a place to live, the absolute most important thing was she had her three children with her, and she was raising them as a parent should in an appropriate, effective manner, raising them to be quality human beings. And when you see that... That's what you want. That's you the success story I want. You bet. Judge Robert Francis, we want to continue this conversation. Head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in the state of Texas. Up next, 
one of the many, many inmates that the judges worked with. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we just spent a great two segments with Judge Robert Francis, head of the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in Texas. And what a story. You know, we were commenting over the break that this is why people now want to be judges. For the longest time, a judge wasn't even a judge. He was handcuffed. He, he was putting people away for longer times than they should have. And some people that really should have been going away, he couldn't. And boy, what, why do you want to be a judge if you can't do your job? And with this kind of story, I'm sure people listening are going, well, maybe being a judge, well, I can really help people, and I can protect the public at the same time. And by the way, what we wanted to do now was shift to one of the recent graduates of this program. And there are graduates of this program, and that brings us to James Hodling, and he has recently graduated from Judge Francis's program. James, congratulations, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. You bet. Let's talk about, and I always do this with everybody who ever comes on our show, where were you born? Born. Tell us about your parents. Tell us about your early life. Well, I was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and uh, I was uh, one of four children. My mother had four boys, and I, I never had a father, and I grew up on a farm, just living living life and then i lost my mom at 13 so i ended up being bounced around from family member to family member for three or four years and then so at 17 or 18 what happens next james well i had dropped out of school gone to work had my own apartment i hadn't been mixed up in drugs at the time uh it wasn't until i so I started hanging around with people I shouldn't have been hanging around with now that I realize. And, and you know, to what degree do, do you attribute a lot of this? I mean, if, you had, if your mom and dad were around, uh, you think this would have happened, James? No, I don't think so. Yeah, and, and we hear this over and over again, James, and it's just, uh, I think it's one of the tragedies of, of the country. But by the way, there are lots of people with solid two-parent families that drugs get a hold of, too. But it sounds to me like you sort of stumbled into this life with some bad choices with bad friends and with the right I, kind of parents. You might not, that might not have happened. For, for my upbringing until I went out on my own, I was brought up as a, to be respectable to others, and that's how you'll get respect back. And and tell me this: When did you first dabble with drugs? What was the first time? What was the first time you remember having had done drug? What drug was it? And what did you what did you end up using as you as you got older? Well, I had tried marijuana when I was in my early teens, thirteen, fourteen, and I didn't much like it, so I didn't do anything until after I was eighteen. It was actually closer to twenty years old, and I started mixing with a. Uh, alcohol and cocaine and methamphetamine, and I, I was just dabbling on it on weekends and stuff like that when I wasn't working, and then later on down the road, I was introduced to crack cocaine, and it took a hold of me pretty good. 
and methamphetamine took me, hold me pretty good. I stopped working. I just started committing crimes to support my habit. I was homeless. I was homeless for almost 20 years. And what kind of crimes was this mostly, James? Describe that kind of activity for us and for the audience. Oh, at the time, it was just petty shoplifting, uh, uh, buying booze for other minors, things like that. Nothing real heavy until I started getting a little bit older. In my mid-20s, I was arrested for sale of a counterfeit substance to an undercover officer, and I did some time for that. But nothing violent in terms of, uh, you know, harming other people or, or anything like that? No, I, I I didn't get an aggravated case until I was, like, in my 30s when I was living here in Texas. And so let's talk about, you know, so you get, what, what's the aggregate amount of prison time? What's the amount of prison time you did in your young life? How many times were you in and out of the, uh, of the system? Oh, my Lord. Uh I have uh, nine felonies. I have several misdemeanors in Massachusetts that I went to, that I went to and did jail time for, and a felony that I had done jail time for. I was locked up in county jails mostly. As a matter of fact, I got my GED when I was locked up in a county jail in Massachusetts. And so, what? What? And by the way, the other question I always like to ask people: so, for the amount of times you got caught. How many crimes did you actually commit? I'm mostly larceny. What do you think that that looked like, um, just as a as a as a way of life? What would you guess? Well, I I didn't get caught near as much as I had done the crimes. Right. I think that if I was caught a little earlier in age, more often, that I would that I would probably be out of it by now. Right. And or ha- locked up in the penitentiary forever. Yeah, I have a young guy I had mentored, and he, he actually had the same problem. He said, man, I was just a little too good. I wish I'd gotten caught more. Um, yep, me too. Yep, you too. So you, you, how do you get to Texas, uh, James? What brings you from Massachusetts to Texas? How does that happen? Well, I was married, and I separated from my wife. I was taking care of my daughter on my own for almost two years, and then... The crack got a hold of me again, and I just called her mother and had her come get the baby, and I ran away to Texas. I didn't tell anybody where I was going or anything. As a matter of fact, I just recently spoke with my brother after not speaking to him for 15 years. I didn't contact anybody. And how did that? How did that go? And I, I, this this life away from your family. You know what did this? You know what did this do to you emotionally, psychologically? Because you knew you were doing the wrong thing. But what else was there to do? Right. I didn't want to be a burden to have them love and care for me, and me be such a mess up like I was. And so, what, what the heck? Just let's get out of their lives. Let them move on without me. And hopefully, that's the best answer. That was your thinking, I guess. It was my thinking, and my daughters, I have two of them. I have a 16-year-old, and I have a 24-year-old. And uh, they both said that, one of them said that she was glad that I chose, that I, I chose, she wasn't glad that I wasn't in her life, but she was glad that I chose not to bring my criminal addictive cycle and uh, my drug use into her life. She said she has respect for that. I, I I talked to her earlier this afternoon, and uh, she just said she she just says that she was proud of me for that, and uh, 
now that I'm cleaned up, I've been out of jail for more than a year with no, I don't have to look over my shoulder for anything. And the 4C courts, they, uh, the program's been great to me. Let's talk. You've been sober for two years. And yes. talk about that if you could. Well, my first part of the sobriety was being incarcerated. I could have had uh, drugs. You know, I could have smoked marijuana or stuff and stuff like that, but I just chose not to. I just, I had a feeling that I, it's something I used to tell all my drug friends that it was coming to an end. And when it does, I'm either going to be dead or I'm going to be living free from my own self. I, I was in my own prison for a long time. Well, James, you hold that thought. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the program itself, what it's okay. done for you, and let's talk about the, your future because I think this is what's so exciting. Uh, you've almost got, you've got a new shot, and it's, my goodness, isn't that what we all root for and hope for with anybody who's made some wrong decisions because, my goodness, there before the grace of God go so many of us or any members of our family who are vulnerable, and, my goodness, to have lost a mother and a father, it just increases the risk. This is Lee Habib. James Hodling, graduate of the Texas 4C Prisoner Reentry Program, and we love talking about these things because, well, nobody else is, and it's important. And for the families listening here who have somebody tied up in the system or who have problems with drugs, we hear you, we hear you, and we care. More after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for this hour, we're dealing with one particular program, the 4C Prisoner Reentry Court Program in Texas. We love to talk about things that work. Judge Robert Francis's court in particular. We're going to be following this gentleman. What a great American story, and what a heart. What a heart for people. And one of the people he's helped, James Hodling. And to be able to do something like this for another human being, uh, is just wonderful, and I'm sure that James is grateful. We're all grateful, both to Judge Francis and to James, for giving, him, for giving himself a real shot. And I think too often in life when you've made enough bad decisions, you actually just quit on yourself because nobody believes in you. And what did that mean to you, James, to actually have somebody who actually gave a damn and who believed in you and wanted the best for you? What did that mean to you as a human being? Uh, I know that... I couldn't look at myself in the mirror for a long time trying to find something to feel good about myself, to want to move forward instead of always falling behind and going backwards and going back down to the penitentiary. And when I got out, I got out in April of um, 2015, and uh, I was appointed to go to the 4C court, and I came here, and the judge was speaking one that my second day here. And he had said that uh, 
he had called called on me, and I said yes, and I said, and I'm not going to be here very long because this isn't for me. And he asked me just take a look at it and see what's going on. And between him and Miss Franco, my counselor at the time, she uh, helped helped me realize that these people do care about me. And it just wasn't smoke in the wind, you know. It just they uh, they generally care about the people that they help here. And I haven't had I haven't had somebody in authoritative figures look at me and not belittle me ever in myself ever ever in my life. But before now, with uh, the judge, he is just he's he's great. He's like a father to me that I never had. He he. He lets us know what we're, when we're doing good. He lets us know when we're doing bad. And I, I remember one day, and specifically in court, that uh, the judges said, oh, 45% of the people are messing up and this and that and this and that. And he was really upset and hurt over it because he tried so hard for each and every one of us. And I had raised my hand and I told him, I said, Judge, I said, you're you're upset about the 45% of the people that are messing up and not doing good. I said, but there's six, uh, 55% of the people that are doing good, that want this program. And I said, and you shouldn't shouldn't be so hard on yourself over it. And uh, it was it was definitely one of my better days. <laughs> good and for I've, you. And by and, the way, he needs reinforcement and encouragement too. He's got a tough job. And, uh, it, you know, being the encourager, but yet being the guy who's got to be the disciplinarian, too. You're right. When you say he's a father figure, being a dad is not an easy job. All of us who are dads know. My goodness, sometimes we got to lay into our kids, and we don't want to. But we have to. But we've got to always encourage them. we got to give them that unconditional love. You had mentioned, by the way, James, that you had talked about two things that had stopped the drugs. One was you got in the, you know, you were in the joint. You, you, you chose not to. What was the other thing that made you stop? You said there were two. Uh, wanting to be back in my family's life. I mean, I absolutely abandoned my whole family for 15 years. And it was, that was the wrong thing for me to do. Uh, but I wasn't going to be able to do it until I could get sober. So what did now, you what did you have to do to change your life so that you you could succeed with Judge Francis? Talk about that that change you had to make in your own life. Well, I had to I had to learn to take a look at that guy in the mirror and figure out for myself that there, that I was worth something. I have never felt like. Well, no, I can't say never, but because now I do. But in the past, I never felt like I was good for anything or worthwhile for anything. But now, now from the program, they recognize me. They gave me a gold star for the thing because I was doing right. There, there's rewards, and there, there's rewards when you do right. You usually get them when you're growing up. I didn't get those rewards when I was growing up because I was forced to grow up a little bit too soon, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Judge Francis's court, though, James, is no picnic. He's tough. He's a no-nonsense guy. He cusses. He gets into your face. By the way, it reminds me a lot of great coaches because they do the yeah. same. What did you think about that when you first saw this this man getting in your grill? What was your gut reaction? Well, he, didn't, he never got in mine, but... I've seen him get in people's, 
and then and then he'll put them in jail for four days or three days or ten days or whatever it may be, and then when they come back, he he has general concern for the person because because one of his things are are you on the ba- are you back on the right track and every time that I've seen people go to jail and come back, they always get back on the right track, but. They don't all all make it. I, I can't say that I've seen everybody make it because there was somebody I was praying that would make it, and he didn't. Yep. Well, and that's that's a that's a tragedy. But that that so many people are James is really really remarkable things. You've turned your life around. Talk about some of your new milestones, then, and some milestones you're shooting for, James. Well, I've got some health issues with my extensive drug use I've beat myself up enough I have to get I have to get a heart surgery and stuff like that but I'm going to be good through all that and I never if I didn't have the this program I would never even be considering a, to have the surgery done I wouldn't even think about it because I'd be living a whole different life than I live right now and talk about your living situation. How are you living now? What are you? What are your hopes and dreams in the in the coming months, years, and maybe even decades, James? Well, now I I live in a little apartment. I, like I said, I don't. I I'm I'm not working right now. I have to get help assistance from the state and taxpayers' money. But my future goal is to. Uh, Get my own business, doing one of two, one of two things: either lawn care or uh, remodeling work. It, I just don't. I don't. I want to become productive instead of neglected. Ne- instead of being not a productive member of society, I want that. I don't want to be looked on and, and frowned on anymore, because it makes me feel better when I'm looked at and people smile and say, "Look what he's doing." And they do that more now. They say, look what Jim's doing. He's doing great. Well, we're doing that right now, Jim, and you are doing great. Talk about that that, that family of yours now, because remember you just said to us you stopped the drugs because you wanted to get back to your family. What What's going on there now? How do you reenter that family life? How do you gain the trust of your, of your, of your family, James? Uh, I'm not too sure. I just, I have conversations and stuff like that. I have, I have conversations with my brothers on the phone and my two daughters, my brother's ex-wife's talked to me once. And it's, it's hard because I feel like I'm talking to strangers. Yep. Yeah. And, but I also know that I'm talking to my family because they remember things. Well, the good news is, James, over the next year, two years, five years, you can get to know them better. Um, I'm going to get to know them real. Yes, I am. And that's a beautiful thing. James, what would you want in the final thoughts here as we close out this segment? What would you want folks listening to the show to know right now? Folks who haven't met you and other people, and particularly people who've just, you know, we're not talking about the, the hardcore, and I worked in a, in a prosecutor's office, and I dealt with sex crimes unit, and there were some people who just kept doing really, really bad things to people. This is not the case with you. You were, in the end, I think, really doing some bad things to yourself and your right. family. Talk of, let our audience have an understanding of, uh, if they had had some time with you, what would you share with them just personally, James? 
Well, if it was the younger younger people to me, I would say to, to take a real good look at what they're doing now, because if you if you continue on what you're doing in 20 years, you can end up in a position to where it's almost next to impossible to do anything. Yeah, I couldn't. For example, I couldn't get an ID for the longest time because of the 9/11 laws had changed, and my birth certificate didn't didn't match my criminal name. And I just wanted an ID back, and well, that's another thing that Forsey helped me get that. Um, the public defender drafted a letter, and I took it to the, and the judge signed it, and I took it to the uh, DMV, and they gave me an ID, and it, I haven't had one since 2008. Well, these are good stories, James, and your your life story is an inspiration. Hang in there with your family. Um, they're going to get to know you and you're going to get to know them and, and just thank you so much for being honest, for being so direct with us, James, and let's stay in touch. We want to keep track of your life. Maybe one day we may have you and that daughter of yours on the air together to talk with our, with our, with our country and, okay. and, and give that sense of hope for people who also have family members in this same space who are still in prison. You know, I think people need hope in the end, James, and without it, my goodness, life is really difficult. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. We spoke to a judge who's doing great things. We talked to an ex-con who's getting his life together. This is Our American Stories, and we like to do what nobody else is doing and share with you the stories no one else is sharing. And to hear more, go to ouramericannetwork.org.